Good morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is John Cavell. I serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, I bet you all are excited because finally it's starting to feel like summer in Phoenix. Wow, I'm impressed because this first service, they just looked at me like I had three heads. You know? <laughs> Nobody was excited about it. I know there's at least one person here who has been frustrated because it's taken so long to get to the triple-digit temperatures, and finally they're here. And all of you can relate to that, right? <laughs> I won't say who it is, honey. <laughs> but... Uh, Anyway, so we are picking up this week in a series that was started just a few weeks ago um, on perspective, how a relationship with God through Jesus Christ shapes our perspective. So we've looked at how does that perspective shape how we view our enemies, how we view our church, and today we're going to look at what does it mean to, to ask the question, who is our neighbor? And so when you hear the word neighbor, it's very possible, maybe the first thing you think of is this guy right here, Mr. Neighbor. I mean, the guy used the word more than anybody else. But maybe when you hear the word like, who's your neighbor, then you might think of the people who live in these places, depending on where you live. Uh, That's often the first thing we think about when we think about our neighbors. But the question that today is, who is my neighbor, not just what does the word neighbor mean, but who is our neighbor. And if you're following along in a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. Uh, If you have an electronic Bible or a paper Bible, we'll be having the verses up here on the screens as well. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, there are Bibles on tables against those back walls. And uh, you can take one of those at any time as our gift to you. So we're going to start off in Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25, which was basically a conversation that started out as a test for Jesus. In verse 25, it says, an expert in the law. This is, off, this is the person who, some translations, is called a scribe. Okay? A scribe, or an expert in the law, stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that was not unusual for someone to ask a question like that to a rabbi or a teacher. Well, what is written in the law? Jesus asked him back. How do you read it? And that was often the response. Well, He answers with, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He says, Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. And it's interesting because now the scribe, we kind of get a little insight into why he's even initiating this conversation. It says, but wanting to justify himself... He asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? You see, in the Jewish mind in that day, your neighbor was really just your fellow Jews, people who were like you, who lived like you, who had the same values as you, who believed like you did, had the same political views as you do. That was your neighbor. And so he's kind of trying, when it says he's trying to justify himself, in a way it's like, Not only is he asking, who is my neighbor, but he's also asking, well, then who is not my neighbor? Okay, so let's go on. Jesus took up the question and said, all right, a man was going down from Jerusalem, and and the implication is there is a Jewish man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, 
which was a, a common road, but it wasn't a safe road to be on alone, and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and fled leaving him half dead. The reason they stripped him was because clothes were a commodity. Most people, if you were middle class or under, you didn't have another change of clothes. So when robbers would steal from people, that was one of the things they always took. It says a priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, meaning the man that had been beaten, he passed by on the other side. And in the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, often when we read this story, uh, we first, when we hear about the priest and the Levite uh, passing by on the other side, often we kind of go, oh, well, those guys are so selfish and so self-centered and so rude and typical religious hypocrites. Now, on the one hand, in, even in the Mosaic law, the call to mercy always superseded the call to stay ritually clean, all right? But you got to understand what's some context here as well, because we might be able to relate to them a little bit more. You see, the priest and the Levite, the reason they would be going down from Jerusalem, you got to understand everything, everyone, everything was down from Jerusalem, whether it was that way geographically or not, because Jerusalem was where the temple was. So they're going down to Jericho, meaning the priest and the Levite had just been at Jerusalem, probably to participate in the priestly duties of the temple. As a result, they would, be, they would have been given food to take to their families. Now, they see a man, and this isn't a road that's like Tatum, where you're walking along the sidewalk on Tatum, and you look across, and you see somebody laying on the sidewalk. You really wouldn't be able to figure out maybe what's going on over there. It was a smaller road, narrow enough, that they'd be able to see across pretty clearly. And when it says that this man was... It left half dead. It means he appeared dead. So the priest and the Levite have a dilemma. They're probably thinking, I should go check on that guy. But he looks dead. And if he is dead, and if I check on him and he's dead, then that will make me unclean. Essentially, what that, would, what that, un, that whole unclean means, that they become ritually unclean, and in the Mosaic Law, there are prescriptions for things that, protocols that you take if you are deemed unclean. Basically, what it would mean on a practical level for them, if they go over and touch that guy, if he's unclean, that means that they, when they get home, they can't even go in their house for a week. They can't touch anyone in their house for a week can't hug their kids, and all the food that they have that they're taking home to their family would be unclean as well, and they have to be thrown out. Now, like I said, uh, they're choosing not to have compassion, not to show mercy to somebody who's clearly in need, and that's the wrong choice, because even in the Mosaic Law, compassion superseded the ritual purity, but there was something at stake. They've got an agenda. They're going home. Their family's waiting for them. What are they going to do for seven days if they can't go inside the house? What about all the food that their family is expecting to have? So that's probably that and many other things are what's going through, uh, going through their minds. Okay, so let's keep going in the story. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. Now, let's stop right there. The Samaritans and the Jews did not like each other. 
They didn't like each other at all. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans because they were half-breeds, quote-unquote. They were half-Jewish and half-Gentile, most of the time half-Assyrian. So the Jews didn't like them. They considered them unclean. Calling somebody a Samaritan was the equivalent of calling them a heretic or a devil. And when you have two groups of people thrown in a same overall geographic location, when one is oppressive and hateful toward one, the other, the other usually doesn't like them either. So Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. So this Samaritan is walking down the road. He sees this guy over here that looks dead, but maybe not. And he decides to help him. So it says he went over to him and bandaged his wounds and putting on olive oil and wine, which were considered medicinal products and used as disinfectants. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, which is two days' wage, not a small amount of money, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. So let's keep going. Then Jesus said to the scribe, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Well, the scribe replied, the one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. So what the scribe had to admit was that it was the Samaritan that did the right thing. And that probably did not go down easy. <laughs> but then the question comes up, well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Is it just the people who live on my street? Well, that's not really what the word meant. Essentially, in context, the word neighbor is the person with whom you have to do at any given moment. It may be that after church, you're going to go out for lunch, and so maybe your neighbor will be someone like this. And so the question might be, would you treat them any differently if Jesus was sitting at your table? If they made a mistake, if the order was wrong, if it took a while, would you speak to them the same way, or will you speak to them the same way as you would if Jesus was actually sitting at your table? Or if you're somewhere and a kid's taking your order and maybe he's brand new, maybe it's his first day, he gets it wrong, doesn't get it right, and then you kind of get impatient and start talking to them as though they should be, you know, being paid, as though they're getting paid six figures and should be an expert at this by now. <laughs> or what if that was Jesus standing there in that uniform with a goofy hat on? <laughs> How would you respond to him? Or maybe this is going to be your neighbor. You see, it's whoever with that person with whom you have to do at the moment. Maybe someone like that is going to be your neighbor. Now, I'm not trying to lay guilt on anybody. I'm not trying to get legalistic. Because I don't have this figured out either. I don't know exactly when are you supposed to serve them, when are you supposed to do what they're asking for and seeking as at every time. Do you give them everything you could every single time? I don't know. 
But that's not, our, that's not necessarily the answer we're trying to get to today. But maybe there's another group of people that'll be your neighbor this week. What if it's one of these guys? That might be a little more difficult to answer. Do we act based on our assumptions? Do we assume that we know all about them because of the way they look? Do we assume that we are free from any obligation of to consider them a neighbor? What shapes our perspective? Now, if you're here today as somebody who is, doesn't identify as a Christian, then I don't blame you if you would say, yeah, well, most of the time when I see so-called Christians, they're not acting like this at all. And I don't blame you. Some don't. There's, there's days when I haven't. But I would never challenge somebody who doesn't identify as a Christian to consider becoming a Christian because of other Christians. <laughs> Please don't. Please don't base your decision on my life or anyone else's life the reason I follow Christ is because I'm desperately lost and broken without it. And if you take a close look at me, that's what you'll see. Someone who's desperately lost and broken. I believe I'm going to go to heaven when I die, but not because I deserve it. Not because of anything I've done to earn it. It's all because of Christ is. Because he's the one that's perfect. <laughs> he is. So who's my neighbor? Well, like I said, it really comes down to it's the person with whom you have to do. It could be someone in your house living under the same roof. It could be someone who works near you. Maybe they're in a cube in the same section you're in or in an office nearby. Maybe it's somebody that you see when you go to school every day. And they're in a class. Maybe they're among your group of friends, or maybe not. Maybe they'd like to be. Really what it comes down to is your neighbor is the one who's in front of you, who's in your line of sight, who's in your purview, who's somewhere in a position physically or whatever where you could have an effect on them where you could love them. Earlier in the year, we talked about what does love mean? What is love? And we saw that one of the ways you could describe or understand the word love is value. That God's love is demonstrated value. For, so, for God so valued the world that he gave his only begotten son, that God's love or value for us is demonstrated in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so God demonstrates the value that he has for people like us through actions that communicate value. And so if we're to love our neighbor or value our neighbor, what does that look like? 
And one thing as we move on that I want to share is that, you know, the thing is, here's the deal. God loves us. And I've been at this whole following Jesus thing for quite a while. Longer than a few of you have even been alive. And still, I don't get it. I believe that God loves me. This broken, messed up, sinful, undeserving person that I am. I believe that God loves me, but I don't get it. I don't understand it. I can't make sense of it. I can't do the math on that. I accept it, I believe it, and I've entrusted my life to it. But it still baffles me. Why and how? And here's the thing that's even weirder, is that God says, okay, not only do I love you, and that doesn't make any sense, but my plan A for reaching other people is y'all. And so imagine God's got a focus group together, as if he needs it, but let's just say he does. And he goes, okay, so here's my plan. Doing the presentations, got the whiteboard, you know, the really cool digital whiteboard, you know, that kind of thing. He goes, here's the deal, here's how it's going to work. I'm going to love imperfect, sinful, broken, messed up, self-centered, selfish people. And, gets even better, and I'm going to use them to communicate that love to other sinful, messed up, broken, selfish, self-centered people. What do you think? (laughs) And everybody in the room goes, what? That's your plan? He goes, oh yeah, it's plan A. And they go, well, okay, let's hear plan B. There ain't no plan B. That's plan A, and there ain't no plan B. You and me, we're plan A. And on paper, it doesn't seem like it should work, does it? But as we've seen, a bunch of kids are proving it out. A hundred kids reached out to their neighbor, whether that was a person living near them or someone that they know. Maybe it was from someone in school. I don't, I don't know all the specifics. I know for the last several weeks, when we pray as a staff, we get a list of the kids who have invited and the kids who have been invited, and we're praying for them. And it's been so cool to see that list grow each week. And so all these adventure kids are leading the way. They're proving that plan A does actually work. And so we can come up with all the excuses for not making it work, for not working it out, for not living it out. We can make up all the excuses we want, but the truth is God's the one that's doing it. And I could hyperanalyze it and give you all the reasons why it doesn't work, and then 100 kids are actually going out and doing it. And making it real. Because that's how God works, isn't it? That's how God does stuff. So God says that this is plan A. For us to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
and then love our neighbor, whoever that person may be at the moment, to value that neighbor, to value that person like ourselves. Well, among all the things that are going to happen, there's three things that will happen when you do this. Loving this neighbor who's right in front of you at the moment. Three things. Number one, it's going to be inconvenient. Of the three people that were walking down the road and saw this man who had been beaten up and left for dead, it was inconvenient for all of them. Don't think it wasn't inconvenient for the Samaritan. We don't know where he was going at the time and why he had two days' wages in cash on him and going on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was a dangerous road, node for robbers and thieves, but he was there. It was inconvenient for all three of them. One of them decided the inconvenience did not outweigh the call to mercy. It won't always be convenient. You know, there's a bunch of moms whose kids invited other kids who are going, okay, well, now it's going to add another half hour to the ride over there to go pick up those kids and take them home. That could be inconvenient, but it pales in comparison to the call that these children have taken up. Valuing that person in front of you it's not always going to be convenient. In fact, often it's not convenient. Second thing it's going to do is confront your biases. That Pharisee, when he stopped, knew that that man whom he was going to go help hated him. And inside that Pharisee also knew that, can you imagine him telling all his, I'm sorry, I said Pharisee, Samaritan, Samaritan. When that Samaritan got home and had to explain to his wife and anybody else why he spent two days' worth of wages and all that time on who? You helped a Jew? Why would you do that? As I was growing up, for a while we lived with my grandparents. We had their extended family around, and I was exposed to a lot of racial bigotry. There were people in my family who had derogatory names for every color, every nationality, every racial division. And I remember as I got into elementary school, moving towards junior high, there was a point where I decided I didn't want to be like that. It just felt so wrong. There was no spiritual perspective because that wasn't my family at the time. But I remember having to think, I don't want to be like that. I'm not going to talk like that. I don't want to think like that. I don't believe like I don't think it's right. And I'm not going to be like that. But it's all I'd known as I was growing up. So it had already kind of been hard-coded into my brain. My default settings were set. And I had to <clears throat> force that perspective to change. Sometimes valuing the neighbor, that person in front of us, that person with whom we have to do, may confront certain biases, whether it's racial or societal 
or whatever. It could be spiritual, it could be religious. Depending on whatever your biases tend to be, God may put you in a position where you have to reach out and to be obedient to him in a way that will confront biases that may be ones that have been there in a, a long time. And maybe they've been there so long they seem normal. Yet, they're unacceptable to God. Lastly, it could be costly. Maybe not necessarily financial. Maybe. But maybe it costs something else. Maybe it might cost you some social capital at work or school or in your neighborhood or wherever or with family, (laughs) extended family. It may cost something to value whoever is your neighbor at the time. It could be inconvenient. It could confront your biases, and it could be costly. It was all three of those things for the hero in this story, namely the Samaritan. But he did it anyway. And Jesus made him the example, the good example. For us in this church, you know who the good example is right now? It's those 100 adventure kids who reached out, who took up the call and set the example to lead the way. Well, they're just kids and that's, you know, they can do that. Say, nah, don't even go there. <laughs> they're doing it right period. They're doing it right. They're doing what all of us inside are kind of, yeah, I wish I could do that. So here's what I want to leave you with. Moving forward this week, and I want you to take a second. I'm going to give you three questions. I want you to take a second on each one. Maybe even ask yourself right now. So moving forward, I want you to ask God first for this. One thing that's important to God that should be more important to you. What's one thing that's important to God that should be more important to me? In fact, maybe even take a second right now to ask that question of yourself. If you could hear Jesus' voice with your ears and he said, one thing, one thing that you know is important to me that needs to be more important to you. The second question is the inverse of the first one. What's something that's unimportant to God that should be less important to me? If God were to say, you know that thing that you're so wrapped around the axle on, that you spend a lot of time thinking about, stressing about, worrying about, it's not that big of a deal. Take a second. Ask yourself, is there something that's unimportant to God 
that should be less important to you. And one last question. This week, Is there one person that you could treat as Jesus would? Okay, now here's the thing. It can't be somebody that you already do, because that's cheating. If you're already treating them like Jesus would, and you're going to go, I'm going to continue to do that. Does that count? No. No. God's kind of going, come on, seriously, really? Somebody that you don't typically treat as Jesus would or you don't think about treating as Jesus would. That doesn't mean you're treating them badly. You're just not thinking of them as somebody to treat as Jesus would. Ask God to put that person's face or name before you. And if you can't think of anybody, cool, that's great. You're not like me because I can think of people. You can take those questions home with you. you know, early in the service, Caleb talked about this next steps card. Maybe in order to do this, to take up this challenge, you want to do that, but maybe you're trying to figure out, well, exactly how do I do that? Are there places, are there opportunities where I can grow into this? Yes, there are. As a church, we do want to help. We want to come alongside you. We want to provide opportunities where you can get involved, you can get connected, and you can grow in all areas. And maybe today, maybe the first step is to discover Jesus. Maybe you've heard about Jesus. Maybe you know somebody who knows him. Maybe you're like me and you grew up in, even to adulthood, still no, having absolutely no idea what the whole Jesus thing was about. I don't know. But maybe if your step, if your next step, is to start saying yes to God's love and forgiveness through Jesus Christ, it would be our honor to help you with that. After the service, there's going to be men and women down front that can pray with you, can encourage you, or you could fill out this card with some notes, take it to direct and connect on your way out, and we'll get it, and we'll get back with you. We'll help you. That's what we're here to do. You know, God loves us so much in spite of all the reasons that we present to him not to, he does anyway. He loves you, every single one of you. He knows your name. The Bible says he knows how many hairs are on your head. He's paying attention. He cares about you. And not only does he want you to experience his love, your plan A, to carry that into the lives of other people. Your plan A, and there ain't no plan B. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for your love and forgiveness that you give to me 
all day, every day, top to bottom, side to side, even when I'm not looking for it, even when I'm not paying attention to it. And thank you that you do that for every person in this room sitting here today. God, thank you that you, in spite of all the reasons not to, you have made us your plan A to show other people, other undeserving, broken people, your love. As we go through this week, God, we're going to encounter all sorts of different neighbors at work, at school, in our neighborhood, in our church. Wherever we go, there's probably going to be people there that fit the description. And are we going to ascribe to them the value that you have for them? Or do we let those opportunities go by? God, I pray for myself that you would not let me rest until I am valuing my neighbor as I value myself. In Jesus' name.